Welcome to Saturday Evening Torah Class, an in-depth interdisciplinary study of the Hebrew Scriptures. Tonight's lesson is week number 34, Genesis chapters 37 and 38. Well, last week, we just barely got into Genesis chapter 37. And before we did that, though, we looked in some depth at the genealogy of Esau, Jacob's twin brother in chapter 36. And we learned that Esau's descendants intermarried to a large degree with Ishmael's descendants, meaning that most of the peoples in the Middle East today have some mixture of Ishmael and Esau's blood in their veins. Now, while it may be difficult for us to look through scientific and rationalize and say that it's an almost natural outcome that the descendants of the two dispossessed sons um, of the patriarchs, Ishmael and Esau, would be in constant opposition to the descendants of the chosen and blessed sons of the patriarchs, Isaac and Jacob, the fact is, that's exactly what's occurred. Okay. Those modern-day descendants of Ishmael and Esau carry a hatred for the modern-day people of Jacob, Israel, that is both historical and spiritual in its origin. Let's remember back to Genesis 27-38. Where it says, and Esau said to his father, do you have only one blessing, my father? Bless me, even bless me also, my father. So Esau lifted his voice and wept. And then Isaac, his father, answered him and said unto him, behold, away from the fertility of the earth shall be your dwelling and away from the dew of heaven from above. And by your sword you shall live. And your brother you shall serve. But it shall come about that when you become restless, that you shall break his yoke from your neck. Notice that last verse. But it shall come about, Esau, that when you become restless, you shall break his yoke, Israel's yoke, from your neck. That's what's happening in front of our eyes displayed day after day on our TVs. Esau is restless. They don't want to be under Israel's yoke. Isn't that what we hear them say day after day? Okay. And they're in the process of attempting to break that yoke from their necks and have their own sovereign nation. And you know something? They're going to succeed for a time. But as I've told you in past lessons, all we see happening in the Middle East today is a result of God's division, election, and separation between Isaac and Ishmael. And then between Esau and Jacob. And it's the result of these prophetic blessings that happened 3,500 years ago and more. And no amount of peace overtures 
and UN councils and treaties and resolutions and giving up chunks of land is going to make any difference. None of that's going to bring this to a happy ending. You see, God's plan isn't that he's going to give men a chance to work it out. Then if we can't, then he'll intervene. Although, in fact, that's practically theologically what some thoroughly confused people have been told. Okay? This is only going to be worked out when God intervenes. Now, a few days ago, someone said to me that if all that's true, and that all that is happening in the Middle East must happen, according to Scripture, and that the only hope of peace is not man-made, but rests entirely in the return of our Messiah, why should we take sides with Israel? Against the Palestinians or the Muslims or Iran or whoever else is trying to destroy Israel today. Okay. Why should we even pay much attention or be concerned about all that's going on other than out of curiosity because it's all destined to happen anyway? Well, that person had a pretty good point. Jesus himself said that the end would not come and he wouldn't return until all the things that must happen does happen. So what's our role in all of this as followers, disciples of Yeshua? You know, in a way, as big a time of trouble as this is for Israel, this is a time of testing for us, the church. This is our time of testing. God does choose sides. He always has. Because he makes the divisions to create sides. Okay? And he demands that all mankind choose one side or the other. Are we for Yeshua or against him is where the first and most important choice lies. As believers... We're called to trust God and to trust his word. But our choosing doesn't end with Yeshua. The next most important spiritual choice for us is where we stand on Israel and his people, the Jews. Yehovah made it clear that those who bless Israel, the land and the people, will be blessed and those who curse Israel will be cursed. God does not tolerate neutrality. Christ says in Revelation, I would rather you were hot or cold, but you're so tepid, I spit you out of my mouth. Okay. All one has to do is read the Holy Scriptures to know what choice is expected of us. Yet, just as Moses commanded Israel not to hate Esau, your kinsman, we're not to hate those that side against Israel. We don't have to hate the Muslims and the Palestinian people in order to side with Israel. Well, as the era of the patriarchs now comes to a close, chapter 37 presents us with Joseph, the 11th son of Jacob. And Joseph picks up where the patriarchs left off. Joseph will be now the focus of the remainder of Genesis. So let's... Read Genesis 37 from the beginning, all the way to the end tonight. Genesis 37, 
page 41 if you've got the complete Jewish Bible. Genesis 37. Yaakov continued living in the land where his father had lived as a foreigner, the land of Canaan. Here is the history of Yaakov. When Yosef was 17 years old, he used to pasture the flock with his brothers, even though he was still a boy. Once when he was with the sons of Bilah and the sons of Zilpah, his father's wives, he brought a bad report about them to his father. Now Israel loved Yosef the most of all of his children because he was the son of his old age, and he made him a long-sleeved robe. When his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they began to hate him. And they reached the point where they couldn't even talk with him in a civil manner. Joseph had a dream in which he told a dream which he told his brothers, and that made them hate him all the more. He said to them, Listen, while I tell you about this dream of mine. We, we were out tying up bundles of wheat in the field when suddenly my bundle got up by itself and it stood upright. Then your bundles came and gathered all around mine and prostrated themselves before it. And his brothers retorted, Oh yes, you will certainly be our king. You'll do a great job of bossing us around. And they hated him still more for his dreams and for what he said. He had another dream, which he told his brothers. Here, I had another dream. And, and there was the sun and the moon and the eleven stars all prostrating themselves before me. He told his father too, as well as his brothers. But his father rebuked him. What is this dream you've had? Do you really expect me, your mother, and your brothers to come and prostrate ourselves before you on the ground? His brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the matter in mind. Now after this, his, when his brothers had gone to pasture their father's sheep in Shechem, Israel asked Yosef, Aren't your brothers pasturing the sheep in Shechem? Come, I will send you to them. He answered, Here I am. He said to him, Go now. See where things are going well with your brothers and with the sheep and bring word back to me. So he sent him all the way to the Hebron Valley and went to Shechem, where a man found him wandering around in the countryside. The man asked him, What are you looking for? I'm looking for my brothers, he answered. Tell me, please, where are they pasturing the sheep? And the man said, They've left here because I heard them say, Let's go to Dothan. So Yosef went after his brothers and found them in Dothan. And they spotted him in the distance. Before he had arrived where they were, they had already plotted to kill him. They said to each other, Look, this dreamer's coming. So come now, let's kill him and throw him into one of these water cisterns here. Then we'll say, Some wild animals devoured him. We'll see then what becomes of his dreams. But when Reuben heard this, he saved him from being destroyed by them. He said, we shouldn't take his life. Don't shed blood, Reuben added. Throw him into the cistern here in the wilds, but don't lay your hands on him yourselves. He intended to rescue him from them later and restore, them, restore him to his father. So it was that when Yosef arrived to be with his brothers, they stripped off his robe, the long sleeve robe he was wearing, and took him and threw him into the cistern. The cistern was empty without any water in it. Then they sat down to eat their meal. But as they looked up, 
they saw in front of them a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilad, their camels loaded with aromatic gum, healing resin and opium on their way down to Egypt. You would have said to his brothers, what advantage is it to us if we kill our brother and cover up his blood? Come, let's sell him to the Ishmaelites instead of putting him to death with our own hands. After all, he's our brother. He's our own flesh. His brothers paid attention to him. So when the Midianites, merchants, passed by, they drew and lifted Joseph up out of the cistern and sold him for half a pound of silver shekels to the Ishmaelites, who took Joseph on to Egypt. Raven returned to the cistern, and upon seeing that Joseph wasn't in there, tore his clothes in mourning. He returned to his brothers and said, The boy isn't there. Where can I go now? They took Joseph's robe, killed a male goat, and dipped the robe in the blood. Then they sent the long-sleeved robe and brought it to their father, saying, We found this. Do you know if it's your son's robe or not? He recognized it and cried, It's my son's robe. Some wild animal has torn Joseph in pieces and eaten him. Yaakov tore his clothes and putting a sackcloth around his waist, mourned his son for many days. Though all his sons and daughters tried to comfort him, he refused all consolation, saying, No, I'll go down to the grave to my son mourning. And his father wept for him. In Egypt, the Midianites sold Joseph to Potiphar, one of Pharaoh's officials, a captain of the guard. In verse 2 of chapter 37, we're told that the 17-year-old Joseph brings a bad report about certain of his brothers and gives it to his father. In other words, he tattled on them. I mean, anybody here have a younger brother or sister that just couldn't wait all right, to find something to run and tell mom and dad about on you? I had several of those. Well, that's the situation here. Now, notice something else. These particular brothers who were tattled on were not the sons of what at least had been Jacob's legal wives, Leah and Rachel. They were the sons of Jacob's two concubines, Bela and Zilpah. Now, that couldn't have helped, all right, but cause additional stress and strain on the relationships between all the sons of Jacob. All right, who were born by four different women, all of varying degrees of status. Can you imagine the problems in this family? Okay. But there is also a subtle change in family status that shows up in the Hebrew. Because for the first time, Bilah and Zilpah, Jacob's concubines, are now called Ishashah, which is a term usually only applied to a legal wife. Now, I can't say it with 100% assurance, but unless this is a redaction or an anomaly, it appears that Jacob has made Bilah and Zilpah full wives, full legal wives. Now, the Rambam, Maimonides, says that at the time of this story of Joseph, both Leah and Rachel were deceased. Okay. Now, if that's correct, 
and probably it is, right, then we understand why Jacob would have elevated the status of Bela and Zilpah. And we also understand all the more the terrible turmoil that existed within Jacob's family at this time. Now, because Jacob had always favored Rachel, he also favored the two children that she gave him, Joseph and Benjamin, and especially Joseph. Now, we're told in verse 3 that Jacob loved Joseph more and apparently made no bones about making that fact very clear. And he further signified Joseph's favor by giving him what most Bibles say is a coat of many colors. Well, actually, it wasn't a coat at all, but a tunic. In Hebrew, uh, ketnet uh, pasim. Ketnet pasim. Right? But there are many types of tunics, right? ranging from the ordinary to the special. Right? And even more, there was a tunic, special kind, that went from the neck to the ankle and all the way down to the wrists on the arms. This was the royal tunic. And the form of the Hebrew used here says that indeed this was a royal robe. Now imagine. I mean, this wasn't that Joseph got a little nicer coat, a little flashier coat than his brothers. It was that his father virtually anointed him as a prince, a prince among his brothers, and had him prancing around amongst his brothers in that kingly garb. <coughs> I mean, the jealousy and envy that this was bound to cause was going to wind up nearly costing Joseph his life. In fact, the envy grew into hatred of Joseph to the point, as it says in verse 4, that his brothers couldn't even speak to him on a friendly or civil terms. I mean, Jacob's actions and his almost obsessive preference of Joseph made Joseph not fit in with his brothers. Okay. Literally the translation is they could not get themselves to address him unto peace. Now what this verse is saying is that these brothers couldn't even bring themselves to offer Joseph the standard peace be with you. All right, greeting that was normal in those days because they loathed him so much. It's within this context that we have to understand what's about to transpire. Somehow, Joseph was at least somewhat aloof to all this rage and hatred that swirled around him. Right? And in his youthful naivety, Joseph didn't seem to have the good sense to keep his mouth shut. Right? On an occasion in which he had a dream, the meaning of which was very exciting to him, but most certainly not good news to his brothers. And in this dream, he sees sheaves, bundles of harvested grain of some sort. And there were 12 of these sheaves, and 11 of them were bowing down to the 12th. Now, this picture this teenage Joseph standing there in his regal tunic, all full of himself, telling this story to his ten older brothers who knew full well the symbolism of this dream, that they would someday all submit to Joseph, and he was the master. Now, here we see how God is going to communicate now with Joseph in dreams and visions, as opposed 
to the more direct, audible, even two-way conversations he had with the patriarchs. Okay? But here we also need to understand that this wasn't unique to Joseph. Okay? Dreams and visions were standard ways that people of that era thought that their gods communicated with them. And people generally believed these prophetic visions. But it was also understood that the personality and the ambitions of the dreamer played a role in the dream. Therefore, a dream was kind of a hybrid thing. Okay? It was an oracle. It was a word of God. It was a prophecy. All right? It was kind of part God and part the aspirations of the person having the dream. Now, in verse 9, he has another dream. And once again, he just can't wait to tell everybody. Right? And the first dream he told only to his brothers. This dream, he relates to his father Jacob as well. Now he says that the sun and the moon and the eleven stars bowed down to him. They again knew full well what that meant. But it was even more insulting. Because in that era, and actually right down to the pagan religions of our day, the sun represented the father figure, the moon represented the mother figure, and the stars their offspring. So Joseph was now saying that not only with his brothers that bow down in subservience to him, but so would his own mother and father. Well, Jacob tries to rein in Joseph's self-importance a little bit by mocking him and saying, Oh, are we to come, I and your mother, and bow low to the ground before you? Now, his whole family must have thought Joseph was losing it all right, and suffering from delusions of grandeur. In fact, it will turn out these dreams were accurate. Further, it's going to turn out that dream interpretation was a spiritual gift from God to Joseph. By the way, this particular passage lends credence that Bilah and Zilpah had become wives for Jacob because though Rachel was long dead before this incident here we have Jacob respond so you say I and your mother should bow down to you jo Rachel was Joseph's mother she was dead but Z but Bilah had been her handmaiden Bilah would have had much to do with Joseph's upbringing if Jacob had elevated Bilah's status to a full wife, it would have been customary in that era to have been referred to as Joseph's mother. Now apparently, the flocks of this Israelite clan were pasturing in the grassy fields surrounding Shechem, up in this area of Israel. While its home base was a little further south in Hebron. And Joseph's brothers were off tending the animals at this time. Now, I, I find it kind of interesting that Jacob and his sons apparently felt no compunction about going back to the area of Shechem, considering that just a few years earlier, the king of Shechem's son had raped Jacob's daughter Dinah, and in retaliation... The sons of Jacob had slaughtered every male resident of that city and taken many of their widows and children for their own. I mean, Israel, Jacob, told Joseph to go to his brothers and check on their welfare. And the reason for sending 
for Jacob sending Joseph could well have been. He's a little nervous about the welfare of his sons in light of that horrible incident. I mean, in the Middle East, the desire for vengeance can go on for generations. So off goes Joseph, unaware of this precarious situation he's in. It's a journey of about 50 miles between Hebron and Shechem. And he gets, as he gets near Shechem, a man informs him that the flock had been there, but it's moved on to a place called Dothan. Two things. First, despite a few movie versions to the contrary, this man was just a man. The Hebrew word used here is ish. Okay, man. So this wasn't an angel. Okay, second, the place called Dothan means two wells. And Joseph was about to have a close encounter with one of them. Now, the, the area of the two wells, you take a look up here, how you got the, the, the plains of Sharon that come up to the edge of the hills, very lush, very hilly. All right? And apparently from a vantage point up one of these hills, the brothers saw Joseph coming towards them, and their hatred now overflowed. Dear old dad was at least three days' journey away. And even before Joseph reached him, they had decided to kill him. And verses 19 and 20 show us rather clearly what it was that finally put them over the edge. It was those dreams that Joseph had that offended them to the point of murder. Now let's be clear. This is not only about jealousy and insult. These brothers believed, at least to some degree, that these dreams of Joseph being their master were true. Okay? If they killed Joseph, presto, problem solved. Okay? Now, Reuben, the firstborn son of Jacob, son of Leah, intervened and suggested that they not kill Joseph, by their own hands. Rather, they should just throw him in a pit. Okay? With the idea being forwarded that Joseph would just starve to death in that pit and never be found. Now, the Bible tells us that Reuben's real intention was not to have Joseph die, but that he was going to come back later and retrieve him after his other brothers had left the area. Now, let's remember here okay, that Reuben... Jacob's firstborn was the one who attempted a coup against his father by sleeping with Bela, thereby claiming his father's concubine as a prize. And although the coup failed, and apparently after both Rachel and Leah died, Jacob ignored the fact that Bela was considered ruined by tradition and married her anyway. Okay. Reuben was obviously still considered the top dog among his brothers. You can see the deference being paid to him. So it's kind of interesting that Reuben, who had the most to lose right, with his father's special preference for Joseph, would be the one who tried to intervene and come to Joseph's rescue. Now besides, as the eldest brother, Reuben would have been held responsible for the actions of the group. And he was in enough hot water as it was because of the Beale deal. Now, it might be interesting to note here that this pit was, in fact, an empty well, a cistern. Okay? Now, remember, 
the place where they were was called Dothan, two wells. And apparently one of those two wells was dry, as we're informed in verse 24. Now, dry wells and cisterns were commonly used as prison cells, even hiding places in that day. So Reuben's idea was hardly novel. Well, a couple of chapters ago, we got a pretty good glimpse as to the hardened individuals that these brothers were. I mean, they had gone into town and slain all the males of Shechem after the men had been duped into being circumcised and were weakened by its after effects. Then they went on a rampage to loot the now helpless city and even carry off some of its women and children to use to increase their own families. So it should be a little surprise that these same pitiless men would throw their teenage brother into an empty well to die and then sit out and have lunch as his pleas for mercy just hung in the air. So no sooner had they begun to eat than they spot a caravan of Ishmaelite, Arab, traders. And with this, Judah, another son of Leah, has an idea. Let's not allow him to die in the pit. Let's sell him to the Arabs. That way, whatever happens to him from that point forward is beyond their control. What fractured logic. I mean, besides, they can profit monetarily by getting rid of Joseph in this way, so why not do it? Incidentally, the idea that it would be such a great coincidence for these traitors to come along out in the middle of nowhere is not all that far-fetched at all. I mean, for one of the oldest trading routes of the Middle East runs right through that area. Right? It comes from the spice-producing regions of Gilead down through the area of Shechem, right where they were, right? and then all the way to Egypt. So the brothers sold Joseph to the traders for 20 shekels of silver, the going rate for a male slave. Now Reuben returns, he finds Joseph is gone, and he tore his garment, a sign of mourning. Now you've got to understand, this is not so much because he laments that Joseph's gone, but as the eldest, he's going to catch it for it. He's responsible to his father, Jacob. So the brothers now put the blood on the tunic they'd stripped from Joseph before they threw him in the well. And they take it to his father asking, is this Joseph's tunic? Of course, if Jacob immediately identified the tunic as Joseph's, and the blood on the tunic was proof enough to Jacob that a wild animal had indeed killed and eaten Joseph, such that the brothers didn't even have to really go and tell their lie. Rather, they just offered their father comfort, it says. But it says also that Jacob couldn't be comforted and gives us a little hint of how people of his day viewed death. He says rhetorically that surely now he shall die and then go down into Sheol to be with his son Joseph. Am I one behind? Sorry. Thank you. At that time, that era, Sheol basically meant the grave or the place of the dead. 
The concept of dying and going to heaven did not exist. Okay? As we've seen in recent chapters, there is this concept of dying and being gathered to your people. A statement associated with the nearly universal practice of ancestor worship. Now exactly what that meant to the mind of these ancients were unsure. But certainly it carries with it some idea of life after death. Even if they were unclear as to what it all amounted to. Now one little thing about this chapter that gives us a little bit of trouble and we'll move on to the next. It alternates between saying that the brothers sold Joseph to Ishmaelites and then to Midianites. Now Ishmaelites were a different people than Midianites. Ishmael was a son of Abraham, as was Midian, but Ishmael's mother was Hagar, while Midian's was Keturah. Now perhaps the Ishmaelites had already become, as is generally thought, kind of a universal term. All right, for all the Semitic peoples living in the area of Arabian, Midianites was more specific in a precise identification, but we're just not sure. In any case, in the last verse, chapter 37, Joseph arrives in Egypt, and he gets sold to a very high Egyptian government official, Potiphar. Potiphar is a rather common Egyptian name. And it's found on Egyptian monuments from several dynasties. Written Pet Pa Ra, it simply means dedicated to Ra or a gift to Ra. Ra was the Egyptian sun god. Now, it was it's often debated as to exactly what office Potiphar held for the Pharaoh. But it for certain had something to do with the military. Whether he was captain of the palace guard or in charge of all the pharaoh's armies or simply the pharaoh's chief bodyguard isn't fully clear but he was probably at that moment the second most powerful man in Egypt not much longer though would he be that way so let's move on now to chapter 38 we're going to get a little distance into this Genesis chapter 38. It was at this time that Judah went off from his brothers and settled near a man named Hirah, who was an Adulami. There Judah saw one of the daughters of a certain Canaani whose name was Shua, and he took her and slept with her. She conceived and had a son whose name was Er. She conceived again and had a son, and she called him Onan. Then she conceived yet again and had a son whom she called Shlah. He was in Kaziv when she gave birth to him. Judah took a wife for Er, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. But Er, Judah's firstborn, was evil from Adonai's perspective, so Adonai killed him. Judah said to Onan, Now go and sleep with your brother's wife and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her in order to preserve your brother's line of descent. However, Onan knew that the child was not going to count as his. So whenever he had intercourse with his brother's wife, he spilled the semen on the ground so as not to give his brother offspring. What he did was evil, from Adonai's perspective, so he killed him too. 
Then Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, Stay a widow in your father's house until my son Shelah grows up. For he thought, I don't want him to die too, like his brothers. So Tamar went and lived at home with her father. In due time, Shua's daughter, the wife of Judah, died. After Judah had been comforted, he went up to be with his sheep shears in Timnah, he and his friend Hirah the Adulami. Tamar was told, Your father-in-law has gone up to Timnah to shear his sheep. So she took off her widow's clothes, completely covered her face with her veil, and sat at the entrance to Ainaim, which is on the way to Timnah. For she saw that Shelah had grown up, but she still was not being given to him as his wife. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute because she had covered her face. So he went over to her where she was sitting and said, not realizing that she was his own daughter-in-law, Come, let me sleep with you. She answered, What will you pay me to sleep with me? And he said, I'll send you a kid from the flock of goats. And she said, Will you also give me something as a guarantee until you do send it? He answered, What should I give you as a guarantee? And she said, Your seal with its cord and the staff you're carrying in your hand. So he gave them to her, then went and slept with her, and she conceived by him. She got up and went away, took off her veil, and put back on her widow's clothes. Judah sent the kid with his friend, the Adulami, to receive the guarantee items back from the woman, but he couldn't find her. He asked the people near where she had been, where's the prostitute who was on the road to Ainaim? But they answered, there hasn't been any prostitute here. So he returned to Judah and said, I couldn't find her. Also, the people said there hasn't been any prostitute here. Judah said, all right, let her keep the things so that we won't be publicly shamed. I sent the kid, but you, couldn't, you didn't find her. Well, about three months later, Judah was told, Tamar, your daughter-in-law has been acting like a whore. Moreover, she's pregnant as a result of her prostitution. And Judah said, bring her out and let her be burned alive. When she was brought out, she sent this message to her father-in-law. I am pregnant by the man to whom these things belong. Determine, I beg you, whose these are, the signet, the cords, and the staff. Then Judah acknowledged owning them, and he said, She is more righteous than I, because I didn't let her become the wife of my son Shelah. And he never slept with her again. When she went into labor... It became evident that she was going to have twins. And as she was in labor, one of them put out his hand. And the midwife took his hand and tied a scarlet thread on it, saying, This one came out first. But then he withdrew his hand, and his brother came out. So she said, How did you manage to break out first? Therefore he was named Peretz, which means breaking out. Then out came his brother with the scarlet thread on his hand, and he was given the name Zerah, scarlet. Well, this story suddenly shifts for a while back to Canaan. And it concentrates now on the brother whose suggestion it was to sell Joseph into slavery, Judah. Now, some of what we read 
in this chapter about sons marrying brothers, widows, and so on is strange to us. We'll talk about it a little more as time goes on. For now, we just need to accept it as we read it because this was simply pretty normal custom for that day. But it was also called leave right, all right, marriage. We'll talk about that in due time. Now, some of this chapter's importance for us is to help understand the mindset and customs of that era. It was vitally important to people then and even in tribal cultures today that family bloodlines be carried on. And we're going to come back to that as time goes on in this chapter too. Now first I'd like to focus on Judah. Because it was out of Judah that would come the Jewish people and the eventual Messiah, Jesus. That is, Judah would now, pretty soon, carry that torch is the continuing line of covenant promise that began with Judah's great-grandfather, Abraham. Judah was Jacob's fourth son. He was a son of Leah, one of the two legal wives of Jacob. Jacob's first four sons were all born from Leah. Now, in trying to figure out why Judah was mentioned so prominently in the previous chapter as the one who perpetrated the selling of Joseph, and now in this chapter as the one who thought he was sleeping with a prostitute, but instead it turned out to be his widowed daughter-in-law, we need to take notice of the state of the family of Israel, the clan of Jacob at this time. Now it's entirely possible and probable that Judah had viewed his brother, or better, half-brother, Joseph, as a rival. Remember, Judah was born to Leah, then Joseph was born to Rachel. Why a rival? Because Judah may have seen himself as the one now due the firstborn blessing and all the wealth and authority that went with it. Why would he think that? Well, as we're going to see later, Jacob had already decided that Reuben, even though he was his firstborn, was not going to receive that firstborn blessing because Reuben had slept with Jacob's concubine, Bela. And Simeon and Levi, the next two in line, were also deemed unworthy to inherit the firstborn blessing Reuben had forfeited because they were the two who led the raid on the males of Shechem, killing them in revenge for the rape of their, daughter, of their sister Dinah. So it would naturally seem to follow that Judah, the fourth in line, would become the inheritor of the firstborn blessing. But Joseph had been given the tunic of royalty. And he was openly favored by his father, which appeared to indicate to Judah's mind that Jacob was leaning towards, or perhaps had already decided, to bypass his first ten sons obviously including Judah, and give all rights and authority over to the clan of Joseph. This, of course, wouldn't have settled particularly well with Judah. Now here's the irony of all this. This wrestling for power that the teenage Joseph was utterly oblivious to was but the beginning of the rivalry between Judah and Joseph, or better, Judah and Joseph's descendants because these two brothers 
represent those people who would eventually become the two dominant tribes of Israel, Judah and Ephraim. Now, some of you are probably saying, wait a minute, wait a minute, I thought we were talking about Judah and Joseph. How did Ephraim jump in here? Well, as we're going to see in a few chapters, Ephraim, an Egyptian-born son of Joseph, that is, born to Joseph's Egyptian wife, would effectively replace Joseph as a tribe of Israel. In fact, Jacob was going to adopt Ephraim and his older brother Manasseh away from Joseph for the purpose of replacing Reuben. Okay? And centuries after that, Judah and Ephraim would become the two Israelite kingdoms that were created after the split of the nation of Israel as it existed under David and Solomon. And the descendants of Judah and Ephraim were going to find themselves warring against each other off and on until Assyria finally conquered the northern kingdom of Ephraim and scattered the ten tribes of Israel which constituted Ephraim throughout the far-flung reaches of Asia. So beginning from the time Joseph was a young man right on through to today, the descendants of Judah and the descendants of Joseph by means of Ephraim have been at odds with one another. It, it is interesting that in the prophecy of Ezekiel 37, that a time is foretold that Israel will cease to exist as a nation and then it will come back as a nation. Right? The same place where it had its beginnings. And further, that Judah and Ephraim would each come back to the land and be ruled under one king, a descendant of King David, for all time. Judah came back to the Middle East officially in 1948 and reconstituted the nation of Israel in the same place it was before it was destroyed 2,000 years earlier. But what about Ephraim? What about those Joseph tribes? Well, they've been making news of late. Okay. Ephraim had not returned to Israel. But Joseph had, I mean, but Judah had. Well, for several years now, large tribes of people scattered around Asia and India have been claiming that they are some of those lost tribes. Well, after nearly 20 years of investigation, the Jewish religious leadership of Israel has determined that indeed they are Ephraim. They are the Joseph tribes. Okay? And they have convinced the Israeli government of that fact as well. So as of March 2005, some of these tribes of Ephraim have now been invited to emigrate to Israel. Okay? The prophecy of Ezekiel 37 is underway. But there's still a problem. See, because the Judaism that modern Jews practice is different to varying degrees than the way these various Joseph Ephraimite tribes practiced their beliefs in Torah. 
just as it started with the man Judah and the man Joseph, and as it has happened since Judah sold Joseph into slavery and he wound up in Egypt, Judah and the Joseph tribes, Ephraim, are still at odds. Judah, the Jews, have now told Ephraim that they must adopt the Jewish traditions and basically convert to Judaism in order to return to Israel. So they've sent rabbis now out to these tribes to teach them and convert them. Those of Ephraim who are giddy with the prospect of coming back, and some of them desperate to do so, have agreed. But you can bet this is not the end of the story. Okay, I suspect that as the return of Ephraim heats up, so is their resistance going to be to adopting all the ways of Judah. So let's stop here for tonight.